first of all, you got to know what your superpowers are as a company or law firm. You got to know like what allows you to stand out from everybody else. And then you got to share it a bunch of times everywhere as much as possible. Welcome to a special episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast featuring some of the most renowned marketing experts on the planet. If you keep changing the language, if you keep changing your target audience, if you keep changing what it is you say, how in the heck are people going to just understand that you are that person to help on that certain thing? I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at my conversations with the masterminds behind some of the most innovative companies and brands changing the way we think about marketing. From staying relevant in the digital age to knowing the difference between a passing fad and lasting innovation, this episode provides valuable insights about what it takes to successfully market your law firm. Tactics come and tactics go. And these little things that'll work for a moment, these little tricks, these little hacks, those are inefficiencies in the market that close up and they go fast. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is who's the person who's able and willing to spend the most to get a customer. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. To kick things off, we revisit our conversation with Billie Jean Shaw, digital advertising genius, internet personality, and founder and CEO of Billie Jean is Marketing. Billy is a strong advocate of social media marketing and a big believer that social is both the present and future of advertising. I asked him to share what skills he believes are most valuable when it comes to running successful campaigns on social media. I think the ability to articulate what you're selling and what you're offering in one sentence is extremely valuable. It forces people to be concise, but the, the skill that really gets, you know, paid today is entertaining, making people laugh. Like, you can, you, you know, go to a gazillion business classes and maybe they'll talk about it in like a negotiations class or you know, sales class, if there's one, if it's not an elective or something like that. But the ability to make someone laugh is insanely monetarily valuable right now. Because in short, without going techie for everyone listening, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, they charge you less money when more people engage with your stuff, meaning when they like it, they click it, or they watch for X amount of time. So if you're putting out funny things that people like to watch, it's much cheaper to show them advertisements. And so monetarily, it could save you a ton of money by making people laugh and giving them content or a sales pitch that they enjoy. An example of that would be, um, you know, Dollar Shave Club or, or Poopery, if you guys have seen those commercials that have been seen hundreds of millions of times, if not a billion. That right there, it's the ability to sell while simultaneously entertaining. And that's what I talk about all the time, entertain, educate, execute. You can figure out how to fucking sell while entertaining. You are in control of your social destiny like no other. And then the other thing that I challenge everybody to think about is a lot of people are decided on who they are. Well, I'm not funny. I'm not entertaining. Like you can be. Everybody's funny sometimes. Everybody can make a funny. Everyone can be entertaining at times, or people can do things that are entertaining. I'll give you an example. Take, let's say you and I are the most boring people on the planet right now, but let's say both of us like climb to a massive mountain and we do it with no bungee cord, no straps, no safety, nothing. So in other words, if we drop, we're going to die. Well, let me tell you, we're entertaining. <laughs> we're the most entertaining thing that you can even think of watching because we raise the stakes. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with our personality. And the reason why I bring up that example, it was a little extreme, was that people realize it's like, you don't have to have this loud, robust, like annoying personality to be extremely engaging. You just have to think outside of the box and you got to do things differently. So I mean, you mentioned that, you know, kind of that trifecta of like entertain, educate and execute. Talk to me about execute. Execute is speed, testing fast, 
right? Like for you and I to make a video advertisement that can go on Facebook right now, we can literally pick up our phone, start rambling, put it up and like get it up in that 20 to 60 minutes. The problem is, is we're in a world of, because there's so many options and there's not a lot of barriers to entry in a lot of different fields, people overthink everything, everything everything. Well, what do I want to say? Well, who do I want to talk to? Well, what am I going to sell? Well, what's the best thing to do? People will go through meetings, scheduled meetings, just to come up with the idea of what they're going to sell. And now a week has passed. And then they think of a week has passed and like, okay, well now how are we going to create this advertisement thing? What are we going to do? Da, da, da. Another week and a half goes by just trying to figure out what the hell to say. And then they get it together and then they go back and forth for a few more days reviewing it. Do we like it? Do we not? Da, da, da. Now we're week three in. And we haven't even tested anything. So then finally, it's like, all right, let's just put it out, test it. We're week four in, we put something out and it completely bombs. Now, a month has passed by, all kinds of expensive has passed by. But the thing with business, every single month, new expenses come out, right? That cycle every month. So now we get discouraged. Now it becomes twice as expensive every month that goes by, right? It, it's exponential growth there in the, in the cost. And we're all just like, well, this social media stuff's a waste of time. When the truth is, just some stuff works and sometimes doesn't. Most of my stuff fails, right? But the difference is that I have an in-house media team, right? There's four or five of us that can build videos and, and images that all the time. So by the time somebody has an idea, we'll already be done and tested. Like we'll think of an idea, film it the same day, put it out the same day, spend a hundred bucks on it and know if it works in the same day. So think about that. If it's taking, if I can test a new ad every single day, that gives me 30 shots a month versus other people who it's giving them one shot in 30 days. Who's going to win? Like you just, you can't even compete with it. You can't even compete with it. And that's the execution. It really should be imperfect execution. Just go. And you also never know what's going to resonate with people. You know how many times I thought an ad was going to kill it? A message was going to kill it. A product was going to kill it. And it just got killed. Like it was just, <laughs> didn't work. And then some things I'm like, are you kidding me? That worked. And it does. And this is from a professional who does it every single day and probably sees more ads than most people on the planet. So speed. Execution is about speed. And Billy, I'm sure there's people that are listening and they're thinking, well, Billy, I tried Facebook ads and it didn't work for me. Right. So they, they just give up, give up on the ads. What, what? Hey, you guys tried, you tried to date too. Didn't work for you probably most of the time. Then you found one that decided to put up with your crap. And now you're married, right? Like you, you, you tried to listen to music before a lot of songs suck and you end up changing it. But every now and then one catches you and you play it over on repeat again and again and again and again. It's, it's the same thing. You know what I mean? It's like, keep trying. Accept this truth, everyone listening. An advertisement on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, whatever, LinkedIn, an advertisement is nothing more than a message that you put in front of somebody. Everybody just remember that. It is a message that you put in front of somebody. It is, it's a billboard, right? Like, think about it. Like, a billboard cannot not work. Just the message on the billboard cannot work. So when I think of a Facebook ad, Facebook's only job is to take the message that you create and put it in front of the people that you tell it to. If you're not getting results, that doesn't mean Facebook doesn't work. It means your message sucks. Now, the light at the end of that tunnel is that if your message sucks, just make a new message. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't say, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's funny how like an advertisement is the only thing that we just want to like give up on, but everything else we understand that like, yeah, like ba professional baseball players, we know the saying, like they're the best hitters in the world hit it one out of three times. So why are we beating up Facebook ads, especially considering the fact that you can literally test something for like 10 bucks and film it in like an hour and put it up. Come on, come on, come on. And the upside, last thing I said is the upside is so worth it. When you have an ad that works in something that's just printing out cash or bringing you leads on a regular for a super affordable rate, it changes the way you do business fundamentally forever. I've had some ads that I've been running for years. So the other cool thing is like, once you have an ad that works, it's not even like you have to do it all of the time. Just keep putting it out. Even your post, your organic post, post it, you know, one day and then a few months later, post it again. It'll work again because a good message is a good message is a good message, period. Let's talk about branding, right? Because some, some of the stuff I know we talk about ads, some are almost like direct response. But what about just running content, posting content where there's not a call to action? It's literally just the branding. I know I know you guys invest a lot in your brand every single month. Why? Because right now we live in this fun time where you can completely control the narrative of what people think about you. And this is what people don't realize. And this is exciting. And when we link up in person, I'm going to dive into this deep uh, with your people because I think it's so damn exciting. But people don't realize right now, 
So before when media was mostly controlled by television, radio, et cetera, PR, there was a handful of big conglomerates that really were kind of the gatekeepers, right? They say yay or nay, and it would cost you an arm and a leg. So like John Doe and Joe Schmuck, like we couldn't compete with that. Like we're at the mercy of whatever they do. Now with Facebook and Instagram, like literally, like you and I, I can take this recording here and I can take like the intro that you have, or I can take like highlights of like you saying awesome things about me in a good way. If you say, you know, great things. And then I can take that, put it into a little two minute video and post it, show it to the people that I asked to follow, that I asked to follow me. And then all of a sudden when they see me, they're like, oh shit, he, he must be legit. Like he's on Michael's podcast. Da, 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 da. I can take an article you know, in Forbes or, you know, what I can get featured on any kind of publication. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be John Doe's next door, but then I can post that. And now people will only see that I can, you know, take a picture with other influencers in the space. And then I can post that. And that. people see what you post, like literally you get to control it. So who you are is what you tell them you are <laughs> like, it's a fascinating thing. Like it's what you tell them you are, like you make it up. It's like wild to me, you know what I mean? So I, I think that's in regards to brand, we have more control, flexibility and freedom than we've ever had before. And it's kind of, I mean, it's fascinating. And we've seen this play out, right, in society because this can go, you know, you can be good or evil, right? You can manufacture different types of narratives. 100%. I mean, you see it every single day when you go on the internet, you know? And so I think that's the other thing is like, when you're not creating content and somebody else creates content about you, guess what? They can control your narrative now. They tell people who you are, period. Now, when you get into like elections and stuff, you have a whole bunch of people trying to create a narrative around you on both sides, right? Which is why you get so much misinformation. But like your company, my company, like little small businesses, no one's creating content about your stuff. So the only content that's created is the stuff that you create. <laughs> like if you, if you want your law firm to be number one for X, Y, and Z, then just make a bunch of content that says it. And now it's true. Like it's, it's a, it's a wild time. Like, it, and it sounds so ridiculous, but it's, it's, it's a fact, you know? And as someone who's starting out, let's say there's a law firm owner who's listening, they want to get, you know, into the game. I guess two questions on that. One, there's many who feel maybe they're too late into it. Like maybe they should have gotten in much earlier. And then, and then two, if they do get, you know, uh, they start investing in Facebook ads. Many times you find that that investment is not like a full commitment, right? It's not substantial. It's kind of dabbling in it or making a few posts here and there. What, what do you think it really needs to be to move the needle? It's mandatory, but it's not, that's not enough. It's the way it is. Actually, here for everybody, this is why you should get on social in one simple example. Take law firm A and take law firm B. They sell the same shit. They're trying to go after the same customers. So the customer's trying to decide who they should work with. One of the people they Google and they cannot see anything. There's like nothing on there. There's no pictures. There's no videos. There's no images. There's no post. The last one was like a year and a half ago. There's like three reviews like that are crusty from years old. that like maybe say some truth, some not. And then the other person, they've been posting, you know, every single day, right? Or every other day. And you can see pictures of the people who work there. You can see videos to get a feel for their personality. It has their address on it filled out. And they, you know, they, they post some content of them doing interviews, just whatever, like basic stuff, little tips, tricks. You guys tell me, what percentage of the time does the law firm with content win the client? Because my guess is 100 I can't think of one damn scenario unless it's a referral that only trusts you. And that's why your growth looks like this straight flat. You're not getting new clients because you're just depending on them damn referrals, but you're doing nothing to attract new people and they're choosing other people over you. And then it's how long can a business last like that? You'll find out because you'll be out of business soon if that's you, <laughs> you know, and I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean condescending or anything like that, but I also want to bring the very truth and the, the realness, the harshness of like, if you don't do this, you, you will be out of business. I genuinely believe that. And the only reason, like, they're like, well, whatever, this company is around and they don't do any of that stuff. Yeah, they're depending on writing off the coattails of their legacy from prior years, period. And guess what? Every single year, every day that goes by, it's losing steam, all of it. And as that generation that refuses to be stubborn as they die, oh, you, oh, you wait, just wait till you see what happens in 20 years. That's not even going to be a thing. Now, and when I say 20, I mean like five maybe three, two, two months. Here's another one. COVID happens. We fast forward into time, 10 years, because now everybody's online and using this product. Like, come on. Let's be honest. Courtrooms may be just on Zoom. 
I wouldn't be surprised if a lot, a lot changes to that. Why you got to show up anymore? Everything is possible, right? Like we, so the question is like, how important is it? It's, I don't know if there's a single activity that's more important in their business. Because if you don't have customers, none of the rest matters. As the saying goes, if you're not growing, you're dying. And if your law firm isn't actively creating content on social media, it's losing ground to firms who are. Seth Godin is the author of 19 international bestsellers that have been translated into over 35 languages and have changed the way people think about marketing. One of the main reasons the legal industry is so competitive is due to the scarcity mindset so many law firm owners have, fighting tooth and nail to scrape up every case they can get their hands on. Seth has some fascinating ideas about the psychology behind this phenomenon and how it drives business and economics. Why is there hoarding? There's hoarding because capitalists need there to be scarcity because scarcity at some level creates value. That if red wine flowed like water, Burgundy from a great vintage, you could buy a bottle of it for a nickel. You can't buy a bottle of it for a nickel because it's scarce. And so we started by creating stuff that people will buy because there isn't a lot of it. But then we added time to the equation. And so if you want to have a world-class lawyer look at your file, it's $900 an hour. Why? because she can't look at two people's files at the same time. So if you want that hour, you got to pay for it. It's scarce. And so we get hooked on, well, I can't give it to you because then I won't have it anymore. We get hooked on this mindset of hoarding. And the problem with that is that most of the things we care about and our culture are not driven by scarcity. They're driven by abundance. So if I have a widget factory, and everyone in town comes and takes a free sample, I'm going to go out of business. But if I have an idea and everyone comes and takes a free sample, I'm rich because I get to keep the idea and now the idea has gone up in value. And so we have to shift gears and think hard about how do I contribute to this culture? How do I earn trust as opposed to how do I approach a scarcity mindset and create distrust? So you mentioned that abundance multiplies while scarcity subtracts. What about on the notion of competition, right? Because one would argue that competition is, is also a scarcity mindset. Well, competition is definitely a scarcity mindset in the sense that only one person wins the Boston Marathon. However, 20,000 people race in it. So what are the rest of those people, fools? No, they know they're not going to win. They're not running because they want to come in first. They're running because they want to run. And so the opportunity is to weave together a fabric of culture. You know, the, the guy down the street who's my lawyer serves as the local town judge for like a nickel and is constantly organizing, showing up, contributing. And you can say, what a fool. He should just charge more billable hours. Well, no, because Joe is always as busy as he wants to be because he's trusted and so he's not a good community member because it's going to help his business. But it's interesting to note that by not having a competition mindset, it actually helps his business. Absolutely. I mean, we see this all the time. I mean, many firms believe that one case for you know a competing firm could represent one less case for them. Whereas when we see collaborations between firms and collaborations even within their community, you actually see both, both firms thrive. Yeah. And part of the challenge that lawyers face is the billable hour, which is a fairly new invention. And the way that big firms used to do their billing is in November, the partners would sit down and they'd say, well, we have these 20 clients, how much should we charge each one? And that was it. And it was only when we tried to industrialize the law firm community that it turned into recording things to a sixth of an hour. Right. And we all know the famous example of that lawyer who went to do a case in Tahiti and ended up billing 29 hours in one day because of the time zones. That's not a mindset that earns you the trust of the people you're seeking to serve. And on that note, actually, you know, I know you mentioned the fact of really niching down and that, you know, our desire to please the masses is actually what hinders a lot of innovation because you, you're basically vanilla. You're not for anybody in particular. Why do you think it is that people really avoid really niching down in many cases? Well, I think part of it is because we use phrases like niching down. If I had to use a phrase, cause I've never used that is I would say focusing up because the fact is when we go to buy anything, 
We don't say, other than ketchup, we don't say what's the average one. We say, who's the expert? So if you need knee surgery, you're not going to say to your friends, who's a surgeon in Atlanta that can do everything, including dentistry? You're going to say, who's the number one knee surgeon within 200 miles of here? And in fact, I have a left knee problem. I don't even want a right knee surgeon. Just the left knee, please. Well, that's not niching down. That's becoming important. And we resist becoming important because the fact is, let's say you make the world's spiciest hot sauce, some ketchup consumers will not like it because it is not average, because it is not boring. And the vast majority of people, by definition, are average. So if you want to make average stuff for average people, go ahead. There are a lot of people in the legal industry who, if they were telling the truth, could put up a billboard that says, if you need a lawyer, we're a lawyer. And that's not a positioning statement. And Seth, to your point, and I agree with you, and I actually argued this even, even in my book, which was a legal marketing book, but it seems that, you know, focusing or going after a smaller audience, many times, I think even listeners hearing this, they might feel that that is a privileged position to be in. And they say, well, Seth, that sounds great, but if I'm turning away all this business, how will I be able to really stay in business or grow my business? What, what are your thoughts on that? If you don't, how are you going to grow your business? If you don't do that, then you're making average law for average people. And average law for average people would be fine if you were the only average lawyer in town, because there are a lot of average people in town, but you are not the only average lawyer in town. In fact, almost every lawyer is an average lawyer. So if I can't tell the difference between lawyer A and lawyer B, why will I pick you? And why wouldn't I want you to be cheaper? On the other hand, if I have an obscure copyright case about whether this is in the public domain or not, there's only five lawyers in America I would trust to take that case on. How do you become one of those five? Well, you start by turning away people who want you to do personal injury cases because you can't do both at the same time, right? So here's the deal. Law school is an industry and it has churned out more lawyers than we need. And if you want to persist and still be a lawyer, given the surplus of lawyers, you have to be a different kind of lawyer, a specific kind of lawyer, not a general kind of lawyer. Now, there's one exception, and the exception is sometimes people need general. They need one human who can do 40 different kinds of law. If you're going to be that kind of lawyer, you have to be the best at doing all of them, which is its own, it's, its own form of Swiss army knife. But most of the struggling lawyers I know, most of the lawyers I know who are unhappy with their work cannot tell you why they are the one and only choice for a specific issue. And if you're not the one and only, of course you're exhausted because you're lying all day long. And there's this fascinating concept you mentioned, it's towards the end of the book, the notion of seeking out constraints in the sense that, you know, oftentimes an abundance of resources is what kind of breaks down resourcefulness and creativity and innovation. And, and this is interesting because I know many entrepreneurs when they're starting their business and they don't have many resources, but they have many constraints, they're forced to be innovative. They're forced to think creatively. I think the example you gave was even the band REM. What are your thoughts in terms of why one should seek out constraints? Well, so if you... Do some uh, Googling or look in YouTube, you will see that there's uh, this group of magicians that have created uh, videos that will blow your mind. Every ma magician uses exactly the same deck of cards. That's a constraint. When REM was midway through their career, they were starting to burn out. So they invented constraints. They switched instruments. They made an entire album in which, I don't remember which member, Peter or whatever, played the mandolin. Like he'd never played the mandolin before. Constraints. And it turns out constraints are something to lean against. They're the edge of the box. You can't think outside the box. It's too dark. But on the edge of the box, you have something to lean against. So these constraints, I only practice this kind of law. I only have that kind of client. I only do interactions that last this long. I only hire people. Whatever you want to say, these constraints force you to go to the edges. And the internet makes it look like everything is possible, but everything is only possible if you're willing to be completely mediocre at it. It takes focus and bravery to be great at something. 
I've been saying for the last several months that I feel like the legal industry in particular has, has made six years progress in the last six months. Would you argue that a lot of the constraints that we face as a result of the pandemic have been the reason why we've seen so much innovation? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there are plenty of industries and plenty of people who have pointed out that as horrible as the pandemic has been, it has accelerated certain elements of the future arriving. A Zoom call is a simple example of that. The ability to transfer through time and space asynchronously and synchronously is another example of that. And so law gets into trouble as soon as it calls itself an industry, because industry means scarcity and hourly and all the other stuff. But if law is about how do I change the lives of my clients for the better? Well, the fact that we were able to scramble time and space means that into that transition mode, we are looking for innovators. And if you want to be an innovative chemist, I think that's great, but most of the people listening to this are not chemists. So how about being an innovative arbiter of disputes? How about being an innovative counselor to help people get to where they're going? Because if the legal industry persists in being what it was, it will be obsolete sooner than most people know. The internet hates the kind of thing that lawyers do. If you don't believe me, ask a travel agent. Well, you can't because there are no travel agents. And the same thing is going to happen to most lawyers. True game changers know that their industry is always changing. And rather than making excuses and blaming circumstances, they innovate and forge ahead. Ryan Dice is the CEO of Digital Marketer, one of the largest and most highly regarded authorities in marketing today. And he's worked with thousands of entrepreneurs over the course of his career. In fact, his company has spent over $15 million over the past few years on various marketing tests across platforms. So what did they learn? I used to, and the way I got myself in so much trouble was chasing all the tricks, all the tactics, all the shiny objects. And it wasn't until I sat down and I said, okay, what am I doing that actually works? I don't care if it isn't cool. I don't care if it isn't hip. I don't care if it isn't like a TikTok strategy or whatever. Like, what am I doing that just actually works? Okay, I'm just going to do this. And so to your point, like, that's what I did when I wrote that napkin. Like when I, when I scribbled it on, there was nothing cool, nothing sexy about it. Nobody would have been overly impressed by it but it worked and it was proven. And I tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work and I narrowed it down to only the things um, that did. And, and digital marketers the same way, right? We're, we're rarely the first to talk about something because we want to go out and do it and make sure that it, actually, um, that it actually works. But at the end of the day, it's amazing. Tactics come and tactics go. And these little things that'll work for a moment, these little tricks, these little hacks, those are inefficiencies in the market that close up and they go fast. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is who's the person who's able and willing to spend the most to get a customer. I mean, that's it. That is what marketing at the end of the day comes down to. Marketers like to brag about their conversion rates. Screw your conversion rates. I don't care how high you're con compared to what? Like, you know, what are you selling? What's your price point? But they like to brag about their high conversion rates. They like to brag about, you know, their, their ROI. They like to brag about the cheapest clicks. Don't brag about that. Brag about how much you're able to spend to acquire a customer because you've engineered your business in such a way that that customer is worth more. Right. I'm more impressed in the people that are that are able to spend more than me, not the people that are able to figure out some trick or hack uh, to spend less. There's a lot to unpack there. And, and Ryan, I feel like we just uh, upset a lot of listeners because if someone probably let out like a collective like groan, if you will, because they thought they were going to learn some like some tactic or some trick or just something to give them an edge. They're like, you know, Ryan, where's the edge? And I'm curious what your thoughts are, because it seems like a lot of the marketing community and even, you know, many entrepreneurs, they almost seem like obsessed with chasing that next trick, whatever that next trend is or whatever it might be. Why do you think that is? I think different people chase it for different reasons. Some people chase it because it's this blind hope, the same reason people buy lottery tickets, right? I think some people chase it because it's fun. Like truly, like I know people who are independently wealthy, they've got great businesses and they still are calling me like, oh, did you hear about this new thing? Like, why do I care and why do you care? So I think different, I don't, I don't want to suggest that everybody who's chasing these things are doing it for, because they're basically like delusional unicorn chasers. But unfortunately, I think way too many people are looking for a shortcut, right? And that only never works. And I, and I get it. Like, I know that it's not that, that trick, but if you can spend more time saying like, how can I make a customer worth more to me? And by the way, usually the way that that happens is by figuring out new and better ways to serve them by starting with the customer working backwards, 
right? By starting with what is a customer worth normally, right? Because this is just, let's get really, really simple with math. All right. If your customer is worth half of what my customer is worth, then I can spend twice as much as you to acquire that customer and, and still make the same margin, right? That's just very, very basic math. Well, let's talk about something else that's just kind of a known. Uh, a click costs what a click costs. I get it. Somebody's got some trick. Somebody's got some hack where they're going to be able to get Facebook clicks or Instagram clicks or YouTube or Google or whatever for way cheaper than anybody else. Even if that's true, and it usually isn't, but even if it's true, it'll go away. Other people will find out that is a momentary inefficiency in the market that will close. It will close. So here's the deal. A click costs what a click costs. It just does. All right. And, and depending on the market that you're in, that click could be 600 bucks, right? I mean, personal injury, mesothelial, like some of these clicks are going to be incredibly expensive. Why? Because those customers are worth a lot. Those clients are worth a lot. If you're selling some type of like consumer apparel, a click may only be, you know, a buck 48, right? The point is a click costs what a click costs. It's a commodity now. It's milk, it's eggs, it's bread, it's cheese. So let's simplify marketing. If you want eyeballs, if you want awareness, if you want traffic, whatever you call it, right? You go to the traffic store and you buy it. It's just simple as that. You go to the traffic store and you buy it. Right now, the traffic store is called Google and the traffic store is called Facebook. Google and Facebook combined represent about 83% of all digital ad spend. Google and Facebook. And Google includes Google Search, Google Content Network. It also includes YouTube, right? Which I know you know a thing or two about. And then Facebook, right? Facebook also includes Instagram. So between Google, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, that's 83% of all digital ad spend. Digital ad spend is more than 50% of all ad spend. So that's where you go right now. It's been consolidated. So the idea that I'm going to have some inefficiency, I'm going I'm to have some gain, I'm going to get an edge on the buy side, you're not. There's no more edge to be had on the buy side. It just doesn't happen. Where do you get an edge? You get an edge by once you got them as a lead by following up better and getting more of those people to, uh, to convert from a lead into a prospect into a client, right? But the big edge comes from, how can I engineer the economics? How can I invest more? People think that, that oh, marketing is done because I got the lead. No, it isn't. No, no more than like, then you're done from a marriage perspective. Like you're done dating uh, just because you're now married. I've been happily married for almost 20 years. If I just was like, yeah, honey, we're married now. I'm not going to take you out to dinner. That would not be good. But people do that to their clients and, and you know prospects all the time and wonder why they don't ascend. So that's where as a marketer, from a marketing perspective, that's where you need to focus. A click costs what a click costs. Focus on ascending the, that traffic into prospects. And then uh, by all means, focus on getting those, uh, those clients into becoming bigger and better clients and referring clients. And when we talk about marketing, I mean, yeah, and I say this just for clarity, because we don't just mean digital marketing and someone, you know, here's they do radio advertising, TV, billboards, and so on. I mean, I had a guest on the, on the podcast that he said that what he does, he really doesn't consider it marketing, but he's given a presentation to his audience of lawyers one a week, every week for 10 years straight. Yeah, that, that sounds like marketing to me. Yeah, no, all, all these things. So, you know, advertising, uh, I see advertising as being kind of a subset of the broader category of marketing. Marketing's job is to move customers through the customer journey, right? From that initial point of awareness through that, that engagement and that nurturing to getting them to take that first step to getting them to actually kind of, you know, complete and become a client to making sure that they're served and that the promises are delivered. Like a lot of times marketing is like, cool, hot potato, I'm out. You take it sales, you know, or you take it product. No, no, no. Marketing needs to stay engaged throughout that to make sure that the promises that were made are delivered upon. And then marketing needs to come around at the end to get customer stories, to get those testimonials, and to hopefully get some referrals. So marketing's job is to own the entirety of the customer journey. I see advertising and sales actually as subsets of marketing. Salespeople hate, hate it when I say that. People who consider themselves to be like admin, you know, in radio, they hate it when I say that. I think it's right. I think that, that advertising is that first stage of amplification right? It's a specific lever that you can pull. Uh, same with sales. You know, a, a lot of sales right now is um, certainly when you think about e-commerce is being reset completely. People are just going on and, and buying. That won't happen in every field, but marketing is the field that remains because marketing owns the entirety of that, of that customer journey. I think it's important. I think it's here. And I don't think that it's um, constrained by any, any particular uh, medium, but right now the whole world is digital. 
especially in a world where, you know, people are kind of scared to go out and hug each other and meet face to face and stuff like that. You know, and even when everybody is like, yeah, let's go do it. I think everybody's going to have a preference for if I don't have to leave my house, you know, if I don't have to talk to somebody on the phone and yeah, let's just chat here. So uh, we see ourselves as digital marketers, but if I'm being honest, I even think the term itself is going to be a bit, be a bit passe. What isn't digital these days, right? It's just marketing. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. I know you mentioned that, you know, he or she was able to, you know, to spend the most to acquire a customer will win. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that when you when you think about that, you know, to be able to spend the most to acquire a customer or client, you have to have clients that, you know, have a strong lifetime value and are like high value clients, if you will. But with that comes perhaps different messaging. And and I think it's very important when you're, you know, when you're marketing the brand or however you're positioning that I know you've said great marketing divides. And yet sometimes people are, are quite afraid to niche down or focus on resonating with, with, with certain audiences because, you know, if, if there's a personal injury lawyer listening to this, they may say, hey, look, I just want injured people. Right. Divide is maybe a, I would say great, I have said great marketing divides. I know, I know what the, the reference, um, we are so divided right now that I, I might word that a bit more sensitively. What I think the great marketing must do is great marketing must get people to not just notice, but to stare. Okay. So I think today it is easier than ever to get a glance, to get somebody to glance your way. You could do something, you know, ridiculous. You could do something kind of out there and, and people will glance, you know, it's like if you've ever been at a stoplight and somebody honks their horn, you know, people are going to turn around and you're going to get a glance, right? But to get somebody to, to stare, to hold attention, that's a different animal. Great marketing doesn't merely get a glance. Great marketing gets a stare. And the way that you do that is to let people know that I'm talking just to you. Right. So if you're just sitting there with a megaphone, if you're just a random horn that was honked, then I'm going to glance and be like, they're not talking to me. That wasn't about me. I'm fine. Right. But if I know that you're talking just to me, where I am right now, just this group that I identify with, whatever it is. Okay. Now you got my attention because most people aren't doing that. Right. Most of the, of the marketing, most of the advertising out there, it is not doing that. It is trying to talk to everyone. And as a result of that, no one's paying attention. They're just another person yelling at a, at a sports game. And where we've seen a lot of uh, attorneys and law firms market, sometimes they're marketing at, you know, talking about the size of their verdicts, their outcomes, their case results. And sometimes that's not the most successful approach. In fact, I know we talk a lot about storytelling and it can sound cute, right? It's like, okay, tell stories. But it seems like the best marketing really is storytelling. Because stories engage, you know, for the reason we said before, and, and they all, they've always worked, right? That's, that's how our brains work. When we go into story mode, we, we want to know how it works. So we are primed. This is how we learn about our world. You can throw data at somebody, they will forget it. And, and they've done this. I, I'll, I'll have to find the study. But they've done this where they have, they've given participants in a, you know, in a study like a bunch of facts, a bunch of data. And then they told them a story that was completely contrary to that data. And, and afterwards, they did, some, did a follow-up and everybody recounted only the stuff from the story, but they remembered that there was data that backed it up. And so what essentially what the study showed is like you can spout a bunch of data at people, but if there isn't a story to go along with it, then, then they're not going to retain the greater message. We don't just remember a random sequence of facts and numbers. So, yeah, I mean, if you're out there talking about the verdict, that is so many of these things. If you're just doing a laundry list of data, a laundry list of features, a laundry list of benefits, and I see marketers do this all the time. You know, I think about the parents in uh, like Charlie Brown specials where it's like, wah, 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 wah. that's all they're hearing, right? It's the narrative that captures and holds the attention. So I think you got to be sometimes a little bit outrageous to get the glance. You got to, right? You got to. But if you don't tell them a story pretty quickly, they're going to look away. To attract the best clients in cases, you need to elevate your audience from casual observers to a connected community. And storytelling is the vehicle to do it. Pat Flynn is the best-selling author of Superfans, the easy way to stand out, grow your tribe, and build a successful business. I asked him to elaborate on his philosophy behind client quantity versus client quality. I mean, you want both, right? You want a lot of really good things and that's ideal. But I think that if you just start with quality, the quantity will come, right? Whenever you create good content, Google will eventually rank it at the top of Google and people will find it and share it and people will talk about it because it's so good quality, right? You could have a thousand YouTube videos out on your YouTube channel and they could all be not so great and you'll get hardly any subscribers. 
sometimes you can have one or two videos that are amazing that help you gain millions of views, right? So I, I, I'm definitely more of a quality game. And a lot of this ties back into something that I once heard Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk talk about, and that's what's called small town rules. And what small town rules is, if you remember, well, I don't remember, but like way back in the day, uh, let's say, you know, early 1900s or late 1800s, right? With small towns, you kind of knew everybody who was in the city and in the town that you were in and you built relationships with them. You would go to Bob's Bakery because not just they had really good bread, but because when you walked in, Bob would greet you and they would ask you how your kids were doing and how's the soccer game this past weekend or whatever. And it felt really special, so special that if a new grocery store chain opened up between you and Bob's Bakery, you would still trek a little bit further to go to Bob because you have that relationship with Bob and then you know about their family and they know about you. And this is the kind of thing that I think social media and online has always had the opportunity to do, but I think we've been trying to scale too fast and automate everything. And we just forgot about the fact that there are actual human beings on the other end who, if you just make them feel special, if you paid a little bit of attention to them, they're gonna wanna continue to come back, but also share what you have uh, as well. And like you were saying, you don't need a lot in order for great things to happen. I was inspired, in in fact, to write this book and actually do my presentation initially from an article that was written in 2005 or 2006 by a man named Kevin Kelly. He's a senior editor of Wired Magazine, and he wrote a very famous article called A Thousand True Fans. And this article was more of a piece for artists and musicians, but also entrepreneurs as well, that basically said, well, you don't need a blockbuster hit to do really well. You don't need a million subscribers. You don't need a million views on anything. You just need to try to get a thousand true fans, a true fan being somebody who, you know, if you're a musician, they're going to drive eight hours to see your set and then wait for you backstage to, you know, get your autograph. Or if you have a product that comes out, they're not even going to read the sales page. They're going to buy it because they've already gotten to know you and what you have to offer. If you have a thousand of those, for example, and they are paying you a hundred dollars a year for your art, your craft, your goods, whatever it might be, and that's not very much, you know, when we're fans of something, we'll sometimes spend way too much on things, right? A thousand people times a hundred dollars a year is already a six figure business for just a thousand people. And to put that into perspective, that's one fan a day for less than three years. And people are spending, you know, decades trying to build a business where what if you just focus on those experiences one a day for one person and build those fan bases? I mean, it could do really well for you and, and, and then you can grow the business from the inside. And, and to give our listeners some context around like, what is a super fan? I know in the book, you talk about this like pyramid of fandom. Yeah. What, what are some of the levels of that pyramid? What's the difference between like a casual audience versus a super fan? Yeah, I mean, when you hear a great song on the radio, right? And you don't know who the band is, you're not immediately a super fan of that band, right? You're just like, oh, that's kind of a cool song. And so what that is, is sort of your casual audience, people who sort of just hear you or, or see you or read about you for the first time. It might be a link from a, another website. It might be a social tweet that was retweeted or something, but they don't really know who you are. This is your casual audience in the base of your pyramid, the largest portion of it. And when you spend money on traffic, when you have search engine optimization, I mean, that's where people are coming in. They're coming in from the bottom. And then what we want to do is convert them into a super fan, but it doesn't happen right away. It takes time, right? People are not fans the moment people find you. They're fans because of the moments that you create for them over time. So from casual audience, which was at the bottom, you want to convert them into an active audience member or somebody who's, for example, a subscriber or they're engaged in some way and they're communicating with you and you're communicating with them and that's really cool. And uh, they're following you on social media and they kind of know what you have going on and when you create something or you come out with something or publish something, they already have a basis for what it is that they might get and they make a decision, okay, yeah, I'll buy that or yeah, I'll take the time to read that from there. Now, they're not fans yet. We need to convert them from active audience member to become a part of the community. And the community is really cool because it's not just you talking to them and them talking to you anymore. It's them talking to and finding each other, right? It's when you are at your home team's baseball game and you're down three runs in the ninth inning and a guy hits a grand slam and you win the game, right? You're high-fiving people who you don't even know because you're all wearing the same color ball cap, right? And that's, that's what happens when a community comes together all for the benefit of their brand that they're following, their team. And you could be sort of that person, brand, company that everybody roots for because they are finding each other within that as well. It's where you get a lot of these musicians have fan groups, right? And they have names for these fan groups. They almost kind of create an identity of becoming a fan of, you know, Taylor Swift. Oh, you're a Swifty too? Or you're a Belieber, that's Justin Bieber, or a One Direction, or, you know, you can name them all. 
And in fact, a lot of podcasters I know have fans that have names for themselves, right? Fire Nation with John Lee Dumas and even my tribe, if you will, uh, has, has dubbed themselves Team Flynn, right? They're on Team Flynn. I'm the team captain, but we're all kind of winning and losing together. So that's really cool what happens in a community. And then sometimes those people will naturally just become super fans because they've gotten to almost habitually consume what it is you have to offer. But there are some things you can do at the top of that pyramid to help those community members, you know, nudge them into super fan status a little bit, which I talk about in the book. So, so for people listening, let's say you're a law firm owner, and I, I always like to address the skeptic, right? They're, they're hearing this, they're hearing about Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift, and let's say they're not Justin Bieber or you know Taylor Swift. Is this possible? Is this idea of creating these super fans, is it also possible for businesses like professional service businesses and maybe ones that are not as exciting as Taylor Swift, for example, or at least believe that they may not be as exciting? Right. Uh, I would probably beg to differ, but have you seen <laughs> this play out in, in those types of organizations? Well, you don't need to write a hit song and you know have a stadium full of people who just drool over every word in order to have fans, right? You don't have to create hit songs. When I started my online business, it was actually in the architecture world. I actually got laid off from my architecture firm in 2008 with the Great Recession. And it didn't feel good at the time. And looking back was the best thing to ever happen. But when I started my business, I was helping people pass an architectural exam. And I was doing this just on my website. And I remember after a few months, I started getting emails from people who had started to get their test results back after consuming my information. And they were so thankful, they were so grateful. And there was one person in particular, her name, her name was Jackie. She reached out to me and she couldn't believe how easy the test was, even though it was the most difficult test because of my material. And she said she had gotten a raise and a promotion as a result. And she said that she was gonna convince everybody in the office to purchase from me. And I was like, that's really nice of you. And at the, at the end of her email, she said, your biggest fan, Jackie. And I was like, biggest fan, like that doesn't make any sense because I just helped you pass an architectural exam and maybe answered a couple of your emails, but that was it. So I didn't really think much of that until a few months later, what she said came true. Actually, I saw 25 emails all within a week from customers who were all from the same firm that she was in. She had been able to convince the higher ups at her firm to individually buy my guide for every single person that was in the office. And so that one person, Jackie, the fan of my architectural exam business, super dry, right, was able to help 25x the returns because of the experience that I gave her, right? So yes, you can definitely do this no matter what kind of business you have, no matter what it is you talk about. And I would imagine that with law, especially with how integrated that is to, you know, what happens in a person's life based on certain decisions that are made or the work that you do for them. I mean, I think even, even more so of a chance for that to happen in here as well. And when, when you talk about learning the language, what, what, what you mentioned in the book is, is being able to articulate that back to your, you know, you know, either your ideal clients, prospects, whoever, but just do it in a way where you're using their words to describe their problems. Right, exactly. And it doesn't mean like, you know, you know, if a client comes in and they're like, yo, what's up, G? Like, can you help me out? You go, yeah, G, I can help. That's not what I'm talking about, right? It's it's more, how do they describe what they're going through? And then how might you help them understand that you know that that's true and that you have the problems to solve? Actually, there's a quote by Jay Abraham who said, if you can define the problem better than your target customer, they're gonna automatically assume you have the solution, right? So it reminds me of my wife, actually, because she's a, I talk about this in the book, she's a super fan of the Backstreet Boys. And in my research for this, I went to her as a source as somebody who's a huge fan of something. I mean, so much to a point where she has like a bin of Burger King bobbleheads of the Backstreet Boys. It's a lot of B words from the 1990s or whatever. Still sealed, right? They're probably worth something. I was asking her like, how did you like even start to enjoy this band? Like, do you even remember what that was like? She was like, yeah, I have vivid memories of that because when she was 15, she was telling me, she had broken up with her boyfriend uh, or they had a very bad split up and she was uh, in bed like crying or something. And on the radio, because there was no iPod or Spotify or anything at the time, a song played that she had heard many times before, but this time it hit different. And it hit different because as she was listening to the lyrics, every word was describing everything she was going through in that moment of crisis due to this breakup, right? And so the song was called Quit Playing Games With My Heart by the Backstreet Boys, right? And so if you think about that, it's like, okay, the Backstreet Boys at the time, they were, well, who's their target audience? Girls between the ages of 13 and 18. What happens in a girl's life between the ages of 13 and 18? Well, a lot, right? But also they fall in love and they fall out of love. Okay, cool. How do they describe that? Do they say words like uh, darling love and you know, bless my heart that I found my true one and only? No, they say things like, oh my God, he's so cute, or 
quit playing games with my heart. I mean, they literally took that out of a, uh, you know, 16 year old girl's language book and popped that as a song and it became a number one hit single, right? And so like, what is your number one hit single and what are the lyrics that describe or are in that song? Every company has a different hit song and every company has a different client base that likely has different lyrics that they could respond to. And it also, I think it highlights the importance of being omnipresent as well, because you, you don't know if like what day could be the day. We see this play out all the time, just in the legal industry. On any given day, somebody could have something happen in their life or in the life, life of somebody else. And if your messaging is out there consistently, you know, where they are, wherever they're spending their time, then you have the best chance of being able to reach them as opposed to, let's say, being a best kept secret or, or something along those lines. So like when you mentioned that song came on the radio at a time where like there was, you know, the break up had happened it's in a way it's it's like well that song was on the radio a lot and and then the timing worked out quite well right i mean it almost reminds me of first of all you got to know what your superpowers are as a company or law firm you got to know like what allows you to stand out from everybody else and then you got to share it a bunch of times everywhere as much as possible it's like gary v he says the same dang things every single time i saw a parody video of his the other day and it was so funny because the guy on tiktok yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, he's so so funny. He's great. I was like, yeah, Gary says all this stuff. And that's why it was so funny. Did, did you know that Gary and his team actually commented on that? Oh, did uh, they? On one of those videos and was like, we love it. Respect. <laughs> that's like the ultimate compliment, right? To have like a comedian parody, like all the things. But I think that speaks to the fact that Gary, yes, says the same things over and over again. But that's how we know now what Gary is all about. And so when you need a Gary... You go to Gary because you know what he's all about. If you keep changing the language, if you keep changing your target audience, if you keep changing what it is you say, how in the heck are people going to just understand that you are that person to help on that certain thing, right? This is why even in a way, you know, niching down sometimes, right? Are you the general law firm that helps everybody or are you specifically people who help people who are over 50 on the sort of second half of their life and they react to things a different way. They're thinking about different things. They're, the language is completely different. Maybe they go through a different set of problems. Maybe they're trying to do things with relation to you know their estate planning and whatnot versus a person who's 20 who's not even thinking about that, but they need a lawyer because they're in the entrepreneurial world and they're looking at creating a startup with shares and investments and angel, like completely different, right? And so when you niche down, the language becomes easier and people are more likely to share you. The riches are in the niches. I want to give a huge thank you to Billy, Seth, Ryan, and Pat for joining us on the Game Changing Attorney podcast and sharing their insights on some of the most sustainable and effective marketing strategies today. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with management researcher, executive advisor, and New York Times bestselling author, Liz Weissman. People look to us as leaders and owners and assume we want to be in charge and that we are in charge. And when problems arise, they should give them to us. But what we have to do is say, no, 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 I'm going to create owners out of other people. And you may not be able to create equity ownership in your firm, but what you can do is you can give people ownership of a project or their world, which is like, you are the leader of this, not me. Meaning, you know what? Ignore me as needed to get the job done. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Podcast.